Up next, Pat Spain joins us as we talk about crypto hunting, and we're not talking about digital crypto either. Bigfoot, snakes, you name it, he's got it. He's a Travel Channel legend hunter. Pat Spain joins us next on Coast to Coast AM. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. Pat Spain, wildlife biologist, cryptozoologist, biotech expert, presenter on television, keynote speaker, author, of course. Several of his books included the ones I just mentioned with a passion for adventure. Pat is always seeking his next greatest escapade and the opportunity to add to this ever-growing list of things that have bitten or stung him as the great nephew of the prophet of the unexplained Charles Fort. You've heard of Fortian times and everything. Charles Fort. Pat thinks of himself as carrying on a family tradition by questioning mainstream science, considering unusual explanations for the bizarre phenomena, and generally investigating those things that most people write off as nearly impossible. Pat, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Tell me a little bit more about what I read, which was pretty comprehensive in any way. <laughs> so I've had a pretty strange life, <laughs> and I guess a lot of it is summarized by just looking for looking for answers, just finding trying to find out the things that uh, you know I can't read about myself. I'd like to get out there and try to figure them out. Did you know what Charles Fort did when he did it in those days? So the, the really interesting thing about my connection with Fort is that I was reading his books before realizing that I was related to him. <laughs> my grandmother on my father's side, I was always a kind of strange kid, and I was always uh, obsessed with animals. I was out there finding every type of animal you can imagine and raising them in the house. And my grandmother used to say, you're just like your Uncle Charlie. And I had no idea who she was talking about until many years later when I was in high school and she saw me reading a Charles Fort book. And she said, that's your Uncle Charlie. I said, what do you mean? And then she kind of brought out a whole bunch of his first editions that were signed and uh, showed me all of this that, you know, had been given to her by her parents. And um, it just all started clicking into place. What got you interested in the crypto world? So I've always been fascinated by the natural world. And cryptozoology really is an extension of biology. And kind of the stranger animals were the ones that intrigued me the most. So when I was out there, um, you know, I, I studied marine biology in school, and I always wanted to go to the deep oceans to study what, what could possibly be in there. And, um, you know, whenever, whenever when a little kid sees the first story about, you know, the giant squid or some other mysterious creature from the depths, you can kind of start to foster that interest and that imagination and thinking that there's a lot more out there that we don't know about. And the deep ocean represents that to me. So that, that was my original introduction to cryptozoology was the, the deep sea squid and just the general ocean um, mysteries. And that kind of sparked me looking into, well, what other animals, you know, what other mysterious creatures might be out there? And that is the definition of cryptozoology. Have you really been bitten or stung by creatures? Oh, just about everything you can think of. Yeah, oh I've been God. bitten by, you know, a small black bear, by a rattle, a neotropical rattlesnake, which was really, really nasty, a rabid raccoon, um, bullet ants, a whole bunch, just about everything, just about everything out there. What was the worst bite, Pat, the rattlesnake? So the, uh, a lot of people think the rattlesnake would be, and that was not fun uh, for sure, but luckily that was a dry bite. So about 25% of the time that rattlesnakes bite, they don't inject any venom. So I got very, very lucky on that one. The worst bite for me was uh, a rabid raccoon. And that I was studying oysters down in Maryland, and um, on my lunch break, I was kind of just hanging out reading a book, and um, 
heard a noise, and my friends and I had been having a water balloon fight all day. So I thought it was one of my friends sneaking up on me, and it turned out to be this raccoon. So uh, I saw it jumping at me, and that's really unusual. Raccoons are usually, you know, they'll keep their distance. So I put my arm up to block, and the raccoon latched onto my arm and started just shaking its head and spraying, you know, saliva and foam and blood everywhere. And we tussled for a little while before I finally, you know, kind of kicked it and got it to run away and um, was rushed to the hospital and had to get, you know, a whole bunch of shots that day. Had to get shots in my arm, in my thighs, in my butt, uh, (laughs) in each one of the bites. Uh, It was it was wild. And the yeah, so that was definitely the worst bite. Uh, I ended up with some pretty good scars from that. (laughs) Oh, that's fantastic. Now we talk about cryptids. What creatures come to mind? Most people think of kind of the, the big, um, you know, like the big two are Loch Ness Monster and Bigfoot. Those are the ones that, you know, everyone has heard of, everyone has heard something about. But really, cryptozoology goes a lot deeper than that. And there are these strange, you know, little creatures from all over the world that, are, that have come, become kind of persistent myths and legends. And there's also just stories of creatures that sound more commonplace. Uh, and, you know, it, it's it's Eventually, a lot of them are discovered to be these real flesh and blood creatures. Um, you know, the skull-faced macaque is one that comes to mind pretty recently. So, a primate species that was uh, very recently named in uh, in Southeast Asia. So, when I was looking for cryptids on this show, Beast Hunter, um, we took kind of a blend of some of the more outlandish-sounding ones, like the Mongolian deathworm, <laughs> and something more like a caddy, so a Canadian sea serpent which there's a lot of different, you know, flesh and blood creatures that can be used to explain this. I've picked up in your books, the the three that I have, some very strange, embarrassing situations for you. (laughs) What what are some of the uh, stories? Um, throughout throughout my adventures, I'm kind of the, the ultimate fish out of water. So I was thrown into these, you know, various situations in different cultures that I, I really didn't know too much about, and that can lend to some pretty interesting situations. So one of my favorites was in Mongolia. Um, the plan was for me to do this traditional Mongolian wrestling, which um, folks have seen footage of this. You've seen, you know, some photos and things. You wear these uh, tiny little bikini briefs and this uh, little shirt that just covers your arms and back, actually. And um, then you, you do this wrestling. And I'm not a big guy. People here, beast hunter, legend hunter, they think of, you know, some big prof- professional wrestler. I'm a science nerd. <laughs> this, is, this is not, you know, my, my forte. But um, this was a way to show respect to the culture and a way to kind of integrate myself with, um, with a group of people who I was going to be asking them some really detailed explanations about their history and their culture. And I wanted them to trust me. So I thought, well, this, this would be a good way to do this. So the whole plan was for me to uh, learn how to wrestle, so to get some some tips and tricks from uh, from one of the you know one, one of the nation's uh, you know top wrestlers, and then to uh, to put it into use in the ring. So it comes time; it's about an hour before I'm supposed to wrestle, and all of a sudden, this enormous man just comes over and picks me up as if I was a child, just lifts me up under his arm uh-huh. and carries me into a tent. 
and starts stripping off all of my clothes. And I'm standing there going, what's going on? Is this supposed to be happening? And there's a whole crowd that kind of gathers around, and they're all laughing. And this guy's just literally ripping off my shirt, pulling down my pants. He's lifting me up in the air, and people are taking my shoes off. They put me in this traditional wrestling outfit that, you know, fits very, very snugly and starts, you know, they this guy just slaps my butt and pushes me into this ring. And there's no prep. There's no explanation of what's going on. People are screaming in another language. You don't know who you're going to wrestle, right, at no this time? No idea what's going on. No idea what's happening. And all of a sudden, I'm standing there with this giant of a man just in this wrestling ring with a couple thousand uh, nomadic herders all forming a circle around us watching. And this person who was supposed to have been my coach just yells in English, dance like an eagle. And I don't know what's happening. So I start kind of roaming around the ring, and everyone starts laughing. And then the wrestling begins, and it ends about two seconds later with the guy just sweeping my leg and throwing me to the ground. And the next, the next thing I know, the announcer says something else in a different language that I don't know, and everyone starts laughing again. And it turns out what he said is, the American doesn't think he's done his best, so we're going to have him wrestle a child. <laughs> I love and that's that. what happened. Then I wrestled a child who also beat me really, really bad. Have you ever been afraid? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So I think that the toughest thing about these shoots are, um, or about you know, just traveling in general, is the actual traveling part of it. So uh, the animals I can deal with, I've been working with dangerous animals my entire life, but um, on some of these shoots, the least control that you have is in the, the travel aspect of it. So at one point, we were barreling down these dirt roads with, you know, human-sized potholes on red clay uh, in West Africa, going between the Congo and Cameroon and the Central African Republic. And we're barreling down these roads at, you know, 80 miles an hour in a truck that has the, the – Odometer stopped reading at 400,000 miles, so no idea what's going on. Um, it had broken down multiple times, and all of a sudden flames start shooting out of the dashboard while we're going. And the driver just reaches over and starts hitting the flames with his hand while he's driving, while he's flying down these roads as we're begging him to stop and pull over. And this is just normal, commonplace. Um, so, yeah, the, the travel aspect of it can, can definitely be the most kind of nerve-wracking <laughs> Pat, I'm going to throw out some cryptids, and I want your explanation, yes or no, that they exist, and what they may be if they don't exist the way people think. Are you ready? Sure. sure. Let's start with the chupacabra. People are seeing this strange little creature. Yeah, so chupacabra, I think the best explanation for chupacabra are different species with mange or with other diseases. I think that they, they live in pretty harsh environments, so they're often seen in desert environments, and um, mange is not uncommon in the areas where it's seen, and there's a lot of different animals. Animals look so weird when they have mange. I mean, even someone who sees these animals all the time and knows them pretty well, it's, it's very easy for them to be um, mistaken identity. So it could be anything from... Um, yeah, I mean, just about any species that any mammal species that lives in those areas with mange would look really, really unusual. Sasquatch, what are people looking at? What are they seeing? So Sasquatch, I think, is a fascinating one. In the Pacific Northwest, um, I wouldn't 100% rule out the possibility that there, that there is a, a large unknown mammal uh, that, that folks are seeing. But I think the majority of sightings are probably mistaken identity for a bear. The majority. That's interesting. All. Interesting indeed. Werewolves. 
So werewolves, um, I, I think, also mistaken identity, probably, for, uh, for bears, for wolves, for other large mammals. All right, that's interesting, too. What else is out there? So the the Mapinguari in Brazil, I think, is one of the one of the great ones that I had. I really thought was most likely mistaken identity until I actually got down there and started doing the investigation myself. And with that one, um, I think that what people are seeing are a giant ground sloth. And most people would say that this went extinct um, about 10,000 years ago. But we do know that remnant populations of ground sloths survived in different spots in the world. In the Isle of Hispaniola, for example, um, they survived until much more recently. Uh, they were smaller than what we classically think of with the Megatherium, the really big um, ground sloth. But I think in Brazil, just based on the location where they're sighted and the people who live there, their, their history, their stories, um, the way that they would deal with a creature like uh, a giant ground sloth, I think that there is still a remnant population down there. Fascinating. It really is. And uh, why can't we find one of these or catch one of these? So uh, in that one in particular, so the giant ground sloth, um, it really comes back to the culture of the, the people who, who live there. Um, and this was why I really love doing the investigation through a cultural anthropology kind of focus. Because um, when you say giant ground sloths surviving in an area, people say that's impossible. There's no way. We would, we would have seen one. We would have gotten a photo of one. But it's, it's a really harsh environment. It's very difficult to get to. And it's protected by um, the government. So you can't go to this area because there are uncontacted tribes. So I was not in the uncontacted tribes, but I was able to meet with some of the tribes that are still protected by, um, by this government organization in Brazil, where in order to even go into the area, you have to have a health exam, you have to get special permission, you have to get a license, um, you know, in order to enter into this region. And then you go even further, and as I said, there's uncontacted tribes. So that takes a lot of, um, it, it's very, very difficult to get in there, as it should be, because we could potentially introduce disease or, um, you know, other issues with, with the tribes. So uh, their stories and their legends are such that this Mapinguari that they call it, is so other, it's so different from humans that if they ever hear the call of a Mapinguari, they have to leave the area and never go back. So my theory is that um, throughout you know, history, because of this legend, because of this story, and because of the protections afforded to the, to the, um, the indigenous peoples in the area, when they would be leaving an area, so they hear the call of the Mapinguari, they have to leave the area, they're actually creating wildlife refuges. They're creating an area where animals you know, can thrive without any type of human interaction. So if the Western world can't go there because of, this, because of the protections, and the indigenous people don't go there because of their culture and their history and these stories and legends about the Mapinguari, then they're, they're creating nature preserves. Have you ever hit roadkill and dragged it into your car and ate it? <laughs> I have not. <laughs> but you've had some strange stuff. I have eaten.
eaten some pretty weird things. That is true, yes. So um, throughout the travels, a lot of times um, I, I don't really know what I'm eating, and I'm okay with that. I'm a very adventurous eater. Um, I, I, I like to try new things. That's actually what I ask for every year for Christmas are just some, some weird foods. I have a list of things that my, uh, my wife uh, has been looking for for me for years. But on these shoots, um, I rarely know what it is that someone has put in front of me. And, um, you know, the, the strangest are usually the fruits and vegetables that um, it's just impossible to even compare them to anything else. There's this delicious fruit that grew on a tiny little mountain in Sumatra, um, really, really isolated way out there that looked like a bowl of frog's eggs. And you kind of slurp it down and it has this delicious citrusy texture, just or citrusy flavor, rather. Um, and then there's the stuff that's not so great. So in Sumatra, um, we were served this, you know, huge bowl of um, rice and other, you know, grains and things, but then there was this meat on top of it, and we couldn't figure out exactly what the meat was until we saw some cats kind of run by outside, and the chef pointed out there and said, yes, there it is. That's the chicken. We're like, oh, that's, that's not chicken. Now, how many of these small books have you written? I have six, uh, six books. Four of them just came out on January 1st, and the other two will come out February 1st. I have three of them. I have a living dinosaur. I have 200,000 snakes, which we'll talk about, and then I have a little Bigfoot. Ah, excellent. Thank you. Yes, so that, that's Sumatra, uh, West Africa, and Manitoba, Canada. You've traveled to all these places? I have, yeah. So um, a couple of them were for this, this show called Beast Hunter, and um, and then one of them was the 200,000 snakes was the way that I kind of showed myself that I could still do this after being diagnosed with stage three colon cancer oh my and going through about a year of um, treatment of, uh, you know, chemo, surgery, sure. multiple dozens of surgeries. Are you okay? Else. Are you okay? I am. Yeah, I'm doing good, great now. Good, Thank good, you so much. Good for you. Take turmeric, Pat. It's a spice. I've heard. Yes, I do. Um, I have uh, some of it here, and I use it in a lot of cooking. But um, I, I've had, you know, some really good turmeric drinks and other uh, other things with that. And three almonds a day. That's what Edgar Casey talked about. Very good. Charles Fort knew him. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Charles Fort is just a fascinating guy. I mean, uh, some of his biographies really. It just open up so many different windows and so many things that I didn't know about the man even being related to him. He was the Twilight Zone before there was Rod Serling. That's right. He came up with all these incredible things. He, he really has. Have you heard of the Gigantopithecus? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yep, the theory, uh, one of the theories about what Bigfoot could possibly be. Is that possible? Um, I tend to, I mean, anything's possible, I guess we could say, but I tend to to go kind of move away from that theory a little bit. So we only know of Gigantopithecus from a few um, very small bone fragments. And a couple and... couple witnesses. Hold on, Pat. We're at a break. We'll come back and chat more. Welcome back. Pat Sprain with us. Pat, what's it like being surrounded by 200,000 snakes? <laughs> Surreal. Um, I love Craftian. Now I know how Indiana Jones freaked out, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the smell is overwhelming. Um, even before you, you, be, before you even talk about the feel of them or anything, just the smell is so bizarre. Um, I, I, I ended up having to sell my car when I got back to Boston uh, because the car smelled so bad after this excursion. You, you had snakes in your car? 
No, no, just um, covered, like, permeating my clothes and uh, my friend's clothes who were filming it. Really? Oh, it was it was unreal. Yeah, we drove about 34 hours from Boston up to Manitoba, um, spent a day and a half laying in the snake pits um, and just ha- being absolutely covered. I mean, you could reach your arm down three feet deep in snakes and just let them pour over your hands like water, just running all over, going down my shirt, down my pants, through my boots, just everywhere you can think of, tons and tons of snakes. And the, the musk that they're releasing and just the scent, um, it was pretty powerful. <laughs> Knowing what you know, if you could go back and reinvestigate all the things you've done, which one would you do? I would head back to Sumatra. I think that the um, the, the possibility of a Rengpendek, um is... I think there's a very, very high likelihood that um, it was there at least until very, very recently if there aren't still a few um, older individuals that are still roaming around in the forests of Sumatra. Why do you call it a little Bigfoot? So it's... uh, when we think of Bigfoot, when we think of the stories about Bigfoot in America, we think of this, you know, eight-foot-tall um, hominid. And in Sumatra, it's described as much smaller, you know, maybe maxing out at three and a half feet or so. Um, so it's it's kind of a the best way, I think, for the American audience is to think of it as like a little Bigfoot. Interesting take. Fascinating, isn't it? What what it what keeps fueling you? Um, just the the drive to know what's out there, that there are still, I love that there are still mysteries in the world and that, you know, we haven't discovered everything and there are still places where, you know, humans are, have either never been or are a complete oddity. I mean, one of the mountains that, that I climbed in Sumatra, um, we were told by the guides that, you know, there's probably been less than 10 humans that we, you know, in modern era, at least, who have ever been on this mountain. And it's just wild to think of that, that we think that everything is covered in, you know, GPS locations and you can zoom in on Google Earth and just about everywhere. But there are still places where, you know, humans just don't go. We're going to take your calls next hour with Pat Spain. Share your stories of creatures if you've run into one or just ask him a question or two as well. Fascinating. I think for me, too, the Bigfoot story would be the big one. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, the um, the patty footage just still baffles people. It's still one of those things that I, I, I point to and just don't have a great explanation for. I don't I don't when I look at it, I do see a non-human mammal walking upright, you know, in the, the mountains of California. That's just wild. It was bizarre. And nobody could get any of them to say it was fraud. They wouldn't admit it. No, no, absolutely. And, uh, you know, adamant about it and have they've tried to do recreations. They've tried to look at what, um, you know, what movie props, what other things would have been available at the time. And they just haven't been able to do it. Strange times ahead. If, and uh, what do you think the worst injury is you've gotten from an animal? Um, so the, the rabid raccoon bite was definitely the scariest <laughs> because uh, that hurt. There's only been there's only been one person I believe who's ever survived rabies, um, and they were left pretty badly damaged after that. So that was a little bit freaky. But um, they so they they rushed me to the hospital, and it was actually the nurse's first day at the hospital. No. <laughs> the, 
So her first time giving anyone a shot, and here she's giving me like 18 shots that day. So as they're giving me the ones in the bites, um, the nurse started crying because at, whenever she would hit the bone on my arm, I'd kind of flinch. So she's apologizing and crying. So I end up like kind of trying to comfort her while she's giving me the shots going, you're doing a great uh, job. She, she, she knew she hurt you, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that was pretty rough. Um, the rattlesnake was, like like I said, as soon as I knew it was a dry bite, I just felt really dumb. Um, the bullet ants, the bullet ants in Brazil. So I participated in this uh, ritual with um, the Satare Mawe uh, indigenous peoples. And this ritual involves getting stung hundreds of times in your hands by bullet ants, which have the worst sting in the world. And um, that, you know, made me hallucinate. It made me absolutely lose my mind. I tackled our sound guy. I, you know, headbutted our producer. I just completely lost my mind for, um, you know, a good 24 hours. Pat, would you put spiders in this category? I love spiders. So whenever ah, you love out, spiders, what's I wrong do, with you? Yeah, I, so they eat the bugs that are that are really dangerous. Um, when I was in the when I was in the Central African Republic, um, I ended up getting loa loa worm, which is a parasite um, that's that's given to you by a type of fly, a type of biting fly. So that's what freaks me out. Parasites are terrifying to me. Now wait a minute, the, the fly so bites you and it goes into your bloodstream. The fly bites you, and, and a parasite comes from the fly bite, kind of like malaria when you think of, um, you know, from a mosquito bite. Right. Um, yeah, so this is a loa loa worm, and if you get it once, as I did, um, you know, you're getting thousands of these little worms uh, in your bloodstream, and your body fights them off. They die, and you just get really itchy. So your whole body's itchy. The palms of my hands were itchy. The bottoms of my feet, my face, everything is itchy with the, you know, the worms. Oh, jeez. Kind of I mean, do you, have, do you have to go to the hospital every time you're on an event? Um, well, there's been quite a few hot. My wife has gotten very good at handling calls from the hospital. Tom was telling me you'd be a great guest if we went to Boston for a live state show. I'm not sure I want to sit next to you. <laughs> I've been I've been cleared. It's been uh, it's been a few years since I've traveled anywhere, and uh, I'm medically cleared for everything. That's fantastic. I mean, so what's the big breakthrough for you or anybody who investigates cryptids? Uh, I mean, I think whenever a new large species is discovered, it's it's a it's a moment of celebration. Um, one of the tough things about cryptozoology is that unless you find the exact animal that that you know the legends describe, um, then people tend to write it off as unimportant. So, like like an example would be the yeti. So we think of the yeti as a giant, um, you know, hominid, uh, a human-like mammal, um, human-like primate species. And um, it may not be, um, you know, what if it's a new type of bear? So if somebody found a new species of bear in the region where the Yeti is described, I think a lot of biologists would celebrate that. And a lot of, you know, people would be really, really excited. But the general public wouldn't believe that it's the Yeti unless it was exactly what they're expecting the Yeti to be. And that's one of the toughest parts of cryptozoology. Um, so every time we find a new species of squid, I'm ecstatic. <laughs> We're with Pat Spain. His website is his name, linked up at coasttocoastam.com. Pat, where do people get the small little books here? Uh, so Amazon is uh, kind of the one that people are most familiar with, but any of your local bookstores will be able to order them as well. Excellent. And who publishes? It's um, so it's John Hunt Publishing and the the uh, what's it called? 
I forget the technical term for it, but uh, through John Hunt, it's six books, the number six TH books. Interesting. Of all the books you've written, which is your favorite? It's tough. It's like, uh, you know, picking a favorite kid. <laughs> I, I love each of them, and I think each one has. I, I agree. You can't do that. Yeah, yeah, it has moments in it. I think the one that's the most personal to me is the 200,000 Snakes. That's the one that, um, you know, is a lot about how I got into this, why I got into this, um, and just cancer, uh, my, my cancer experience throughout um, not just filming but just throughout my life and, and what, that, uh, what that has kind of meant towards my drive and my um, goals with this. Of all these creatures that people think exist, which is the ones that you think you've seen? So I believe that I heard the Mapinguari when I was in Brazil. I think that that's the one. Um, we, we heard a call one night when we were in a region. The guys were very, very hesitant to bring us there. It was one of those things that we had to get someone who wasn't a member of the particular tribe of the indigenous people who lived there because they wouldn't go back to this region where it had been heard. Um, so they, they brought us there. We did hear this call that freaked out everyone out, um, even the folks who were not a member of this group, um, they just they, they kept on saying, we need to leave, we need to leave. And I really, uh, the only thing, I've worked with sloths before, and it did sound like a lower-pitched um, sloth call. So I do believe that we heard that while we were down there. Um, seen, I mean, I discovered the first barracuda ever caught in Maine. Um, that was pretty cool. When I was uh, 16 on a marine bio internship, I found a water moccasin or a, a cottonmouth snake about 200 miles outside of their known range. So there, there, are, there is a lot out there. It is, a, it is a quite a field, to be sure. Is science getting involved in any of this? They don't seem to be. Um, I, I really like uh, Darren Nash's take on this. So he, um, Darren Nash out of England, he really has this great, um, you know, concept of kind of blending cryptozoology with biology and saying that cryptozoology um, really isn't distinct from regular biology. You know, if you're talking about the, looking for undiscovered creatures, that's what biologists do. That's what we do whenever we're in, you know, a region where this is possible, or even in, in uh you know, closer spots. Like we're still finding new species in America pretty regularly. So where cryptozoology differs is with, um, you know, it kind of blends in this cultural anthropology uh, focus as well. And that's what I love about the, um, the expeditions that I've done is we're really looking at these animals through a human lens. So we're looking at them, yes, as the possibility that it's a flesh and blood creature, but more so why is the story of this creature important and what does it tell us about the indigenous populations? What does it tell us about the other creatures that are in the area? And um, that's kind of my favorite take on cryptozoology is that it's really a blend of biology and anthropology. Pat, on these investigations, have you felt that uh, there's some species that are disappearing on this, almost going to extinct, like certain insects and things like that? Have you felt that? Absolutely. Absolutely. So when, when, when I was in, um, even down in Costa Rica, you know, we were working with um, a frog expert down there, and he was kind of bringing us um, into these regions of the forest where he said, you know, five years before they would have found 
um, you know, dozens of these uh, these frogs, you know, that, that we were looking for. And now it's almost impossible to find any of them. And you're finding new insects. Um, I mean, we can look at lanternflies that kind of plagued the eastern United States this past summer. Um, they weren't there uh, previously, and now we're getting swarms of them. Um, you know, so there there are invasive species, and there are species disappearing um, at a pretty rapid rate. Uh, the amphibians are being hit some of the hardest, and um, yeah, certain insect species as well. Of the two books you said you're writing, what creatures are those? Um, oh, so th- those ones have already um, been written. It's just the publisher is putting them out at a different uh, a different time frame. So. Those two, I honestly can't remember which ones are the <laughs> sea serpents. There's too many, right? Yeah, I mean, six of them was, was wild. That was not my original intention. I wrote this as one book, and um, I wrote about 800 pages, which is way too much for one book. Um, and the publisher that I was working with said, um, you know, we're going to have to cut this back. And I said, absolutely, let's start cutting it back. And once they read all 800 pages, they said, mm-hmm. Rather than cut it back, what if you wrote more? <laughs> we made this six books. Have you heard of the panther with the red eyes? It it sounds familiar, but I can't place it. Apparently there's a panther running around somewhere, but it's got red eyes. When you see it at night, it's got these beady red eyes, almost demon-like. Yeah, so I, I, there's a lot of animals that are described as having glowing red eyes and red eyes at night, like the um, the Beast of Bray Road and right. things like that. And um, so I did an investigation on the Beast of Bray Road, and I think that most— That, that was the late Linda Godfrey's story, yes. I think. Yes, yeah, she was amazing. She was such a wonderful woman. I was able to, to meet with her and spend an afternoon with her, and she's just she was so warm and welcoming, and I was so sad to hear about her passing oh. in 2022. She, she was really excellent. We've lost a lot of great, great researchers. We did. We certainly did. And she, she was amazing. She was just, as I said, just one of the most kind and welcoming people that, I, that I've come across. What, what will a crypto hunter not cover? So I generally have, have shied away from the more paranormal aspect of things, the things that um, don't really have a biological explanation. Well, like ghosts and things like that? Yeah, yeah, which do fascinate me. I'm very interested, but that, that tends to fall outside of the realm of cryptozoology. That's really more of the paranormal. And I think the most fascinating non-crypto um, mysterious topic to me are aliens. Um, I think that that, you know... There's been so much new data that's come out this past year on UFO sightings and things, and um, you know the possibility of life being elsewhere um, in the universe is being very, very high. There is a high likelihood of that. So I think that that topic is really interesting, but haven't done uh, formal investigations myself into it. We're taking calls next hour with Pat Spain as we talk about his world as a cryptozoologist. Of all the things you've done, biology, cryptozoology, you're a biotech expert, TV presenter, what fascinates you the most? Oh, man, I think that really it's it's people. <laughs> people are so interesting. It's, uh, it's constantly surprising what people will come up with, what people will say and do, and the, the responses. Um, and I'm a father now. I've got two kids. Oh, good for you. Four, good for you. And they, they amaze me and fascinate me every day. And I've been fortunate to have a couple weeks off where I've been able to spend um, you know, a lot of time and bringing them on adventures and getting to see um, – you know, things that have become commonplace to me over the years but are completely new to them. It's just 
unreal and the coolest thing that's that I've ever done. <laughs> and you've got the colon cancer licked? Yes, yes. Well, knock on wood. Um, I definitely have a really dark sense of humor about all things uh, involving this after what I went through. And uh, my my oncologist, um, it was really great. So when when I was cleared, you know, I, I passed the kind of mark that they they're interested, you know, that they're they're hoping for. And um, he said, <laughs> my uh, my this is my oncologist said he goes, look at I can't tell you that you don't have cancer right now. I can't say that I don't have cancer right now. He said, but what I can tell you is right now you are just as likely to die from cancer as everyone else is, which is actually pretty likely. <laughs> I was like, all right, that works. So I'm back in the normal population. Chris, we're going to take a quick break and come back and take phone calls with you next. If you have a crypto story or just a question, share that with us. We'll be back.